Well, thank you for allowing us to be here uh, today with Compassion. Um, I've been involved with Compassion for, oh boy, uh, probably uh, 23, 24, maybe 25 years. And uh, many of you uh, would probably know that Compassion is a uh, relief and child development organization that works uh, with children to release them from poverty in Jesus' name. And they do that through local churches in country, uh, through sponsorships of, from people like myself and, and potentially you. Wonder, one of the wonderful things about Compassion, and I'm so proud of the way Compassion works, is at least 80% of every dollar that I send goes directly to benefit that child. It doesn't go into a pot to benefit the, the community, do community development. Compassion does some of those things. They do it from different funds. It goes directly to benefit that child. And we work with the poorest of the poor in the countries where we work. And those sponsorship dollars go to provide things like education, healthcare, meals, skill training. But the thing I love maybe the most about Compassion is every one of those children is systematically taught about Jesus uh, in those Compassion um, uh, sites. COVID has had a huge impact on uh, people who are living in poverty. It's, it's been difficult for us. I'm sure many of you are getting tired of masks and some of the restrictions and things, uh, but it has been particularly devastating in third world countries. Uh, agencies like the World Bank have indicated that COVID has set back uh, the, the poverty clock, the advances that have been made in eradicating poverty by 30 years. And according to the World Bank, COVID-19, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed an additional 70 million people uh, into extreme poverty. And they would describe extreme poverty as anyone who's living on less than a dollar and 90 cents a day. When, when COVID hit, all of Compassion's child development centers had to close down. And that's where our, we, we deliver what we deliver. And so they had to become very creative. Compassion made some adjustments. Uh, people on ground were, were going to the children's homes. And Compassion really focused on, on a number of things. One was providing food hampers. Many of our families, if they had work, lost that work. They had their own small businesses or they were day laborers. Um, and so Compassion started delivering food hampers to families. One of the excellent things, one of the best things uh, that I uh, have seen come out of this is that Compassion has not lost one child or family member to starvation during COVID um, because of that support. They've also been delivering hygiene and personal protection uh, uh, kits. Uh, we've been told washing our hands is really important. Now, when you live in a third world country and you don't have running water in your home, you have to, you have to journey, uh, you know, half an hour or longer to get water and then bring it home. Um, you don't have enough to wash regularly. And so Compassion started delivering uh, hand sanitizer and masks to people who could not get them on their own as another level of help. And then the other thing they've been doing is providing rent support. And you may be thinking, rent support, what's that about? Well, many of our, our families have lost jobs. And, uh, you know, in, in third world countries, if you don't work today, you probably don't eat today. If you don't work all month, not only don't you eat, but you don't have anywhere to live anymore. And so there was great risk in a lot of people losing their jobs or losing their homes 
or forcing their children to go work, which means they can't really be part of the compassion program or uh, maybe losing their home and then having to move away. And so Compassion has been taking some of my dollars to help my families make sure that they can keep their home and their children can stay in the, pro in the, the programs. At this point, two-thirds of the child development uh, centers are back up and running and are able to deliver, deliver full programming. But all of the kids are still being cared for. Uh, as you saw in the video, Compassion works. It is uh, a very practical way of seeing children released from poverty in Jesus' name and breaking that cycle of poverty. And I've been so proud at how they have relentlessly and practically cared for the poorest of the poor during this COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, for those of you who are already sponsors, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for investing in those children and uh, helping them break out of the cycle of poverty. Your $41 a month uh, has literally uh, saved some of your kids' lives over this last 20 months. If you're not a sponsor, I would encourage you to go to the table, talk to Brian, and uh, look at the possibility of becoming a sponsor. Um, and, and having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a child. I visited a number, I visited a number of our children, I visited a number of child development centers, and uh, one of their most prized possessions is the letters that they get. I am not surprised that those people could tell you the names of their sponsors. Uh, they didn't have to go look them up. They know them because of the letters that go back and forth. Uh, so I would encourage you to think about that today and uh, uh, as you uh, leave. Uh, I've been involved in youth ministry since 1979. Uh, I don't know why anyone would choose to work with big people when they can work with, with students. Uh, I regularly say to senior pastors, especially those who were youth pastors sometime in their life, I don't know what you did to tick Jesus off, that he's making you work with big people. Um, but if you repent, I know he'll forgive you, Mike. Uh, Frank, I know he'll forgive you. You've got the personality to work with students, I can tell. Um, I don't know if he'll let you back into his favorite part of the kingdom garden. Uh, but I, I happen to believe it's youth ministry. Uh, I don't know why anyone would choose to work with big people. You're lovely. I just don't get it. Um, I'm a youth guy. I've been involved in youth ministry since 1979, started as a volunteer and then got totally hooked and sensed God's call into ministry. A number of years ago as a youth pastor, I was standing outside a youth room on a Wednesday night. We were trying to get youth going and uh, there were a number of students in the room and there was one girl, her name was Barb. I said, Barb, are you coming? She said, no. I said, how come? She said, there's no one in there. And I looked in there and I said, sister, one of us needs glasses. I can see people in there. She said, I don't know anyone in there. I said, Barb, you know me. I'm going to be in there. She said, I don't know anyone in there that matters. Um, youth ministry has a great way of keeping a guy grounded. <laughs> but, um, and, and I know she didn't mean to, but she said something that night that, that pushed on a little button in my heart. Um, this, this idea of mattering, this fear of insignificance, that... The, the nagging question, does my life really matter? I think um, that many of us, especially as we get older, we start thinking about, does my life really count? Does it matter somehow? And, and Donna and I, my wife and I, were talking one night about the difference between significance and value. We all have value. 
Every one of us in this room, everybody in this city, everybody in this country has value because we were created by the God of the universe. We all have value. That will never be lost. But the question is, do, do we have significance? Does my life matter? Does it matter that I've been here? And so my question this morning for us, I would just like to think about for a little bit, is how can I live my life so I don't waste it? How can I know that I'm living a life of significance? Now, I don't know if you've ever kind of wondered where that, that fear might come from. What, what's the, the genesis? What's the source of that fear? Uh, I think you're all aware we all have significant physical needs. We have to eat. We have to sleep. Uh, we, we, we have to breathe. We, we have to avoid what we've had to eat and sleep. Those, those are legitimate. Uh, not, we don't have to avoid what we've had to eat or sleep, rather. Boy, it's tough. Um, we have to avoid what we've had to drink and eat. It is the big people problem. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and if you don't believe me, just um, reach over and put your hand over your neighbor's mouth for a moment and, and nose and see how long they passively sit there. Fights would start to break out because it's a need and we will do ridiculous things to get our needs met. I am convinced that just like we have undeniable physical needs, the God of the universe has created us with internal, emotional, spiritual needs. Heart needs. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James wrote these words. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But what are those desires that battle within us? I'm convinced those are needs that God has hardwired into every human heart. I believe we, everyone on the face of the planet has a need to be loved. Everyone on the face of the planet has a need to somehow deal with the pain that life distributes to us. And we all have the need to know that our life matters. That we have some significance. And I think if you look at any unusual, odd behavior and are able to mine below the surface, you will discover it's, a, it's an attempt to get one of those or more of those inside needs met. Why does the junior high student who seems to live in a, a loving, warm, functional home run away? I bet it's to get one of those inside needs met. Why does the, junior high, or the senior high boy or girl seem to go from one serial dating relationship to another? They just are not okay if they're not connected to some kind of romantic interest. I think they're trying to medicate a deep inside need. Why does the, the middle-aged businessman run off and abandon his family and he runs off with the secretary or something? I suspect that if you were to mine below the surface, he is desperately trying to meet some of those deep inside needs. I think we've all been hardwired by God to not only know that we're loved, to not only know that we uh, can deal with the pain in life, but to know our life has significance. And our culture assigns significance in a number of ways. But one of the ways is our, our occupation equals significance. What's one of the most common questions that gets asked by somebody who you're just meeting in a social setting? Well, so what do you do for a living? And if it's doctor or lawyer or executive, maybe it's up here. If it's something else, it's down here. 
You know, if it's the guy that drives around the truck that sucks out septic tanks, I think it's down here. Um, another one, the uh, way we assign significance is success. Uh, the marks you get at school. Uh, the progress you make in the corporate world. Uh, being on top. Uh, athletes who win gold in the Olympics. They're seen as significant. We, we layer significance on them. They matter. Notoriety is another thing that gives significance. And I think it starts in junior high. It's who you know and who you hang out with. If you're known by the right people and move in the right circles. You know, whose faces appear on the cover of magazines? They're the ones who have significance. Or power. Being the boss, being in control, being at the top of the heap. Because we've been wired to need to be significant, we don't want to end up at the end of our lives and look back and ask, did my life really matter? But what is it? Are, are those things that, things that give us significance? I think you'd probably agree that Jesus lived a life of significance. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. He was the most significant man who ever walked the face of the planet. But when we measure his life against how our culture assigns significance, he doesn't really measure up. What was his occupation? Well, he was a simple laborer who turned teacher. And I can imagine him at a social gathering. Hey, so what do you do? Well, I was a carpenter, but now I'm a teacher. Oh, that's cool. Where do you teach? Uh, well, you know, um, around the odd synagogue here and there, sometimes from a boat. Success. He, he never had success. He didn't climb the corporate ladder of the day. Excuse me, of the day. In fact, he was put to death by those who had. He, in notoriety. His friends and followers were lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen. They ranged from outcasts to commoners. A few gen if, if, if it was today, it'd be a few general laborers, some hell's angels, the local dope dealer, a bunch of dope users, strippers, AIDS patients, some mafia, and the odd civil servant, and they might be hard to tell apart. When it came to wealth, he never had a bank account. He, as far as we can tell, he never had a fixed address. And when it came to power... He was a Jew who was outside the political system of Rome of his day and who was outside the religious system of the Jews. He had none of the culture's assigned significance. But somehow Jesus lived a life of significance. I love the way the message renders Matthew eleven twenty-eight where Jesus is uh, saying these words, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real wet rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says, watch me. Learn from me. You can tell a lot about a person by what consumes them. And as I've studied Jesus' life, he seemed to be consumed by two things. The first thing was very simply this, doing his Father's will. In John 5, 19, 
It says this, Jesus replied, I assure you, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does also. Jesus lived in his humanity to please his father in heaven. He lived for his father's smile, his father's well done. The second thing I see in Jesus' life was that he was consumed by and passionate about serving and loving other people. In Matthew 20, 25, it says this, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that in this world kings are tyrants and officials lorded over people beneath them. But among you it should be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and give my life as a ransom for many. As I look at Jesus' life, it seems to me he was all about two things, carrying out his Father's will and loving people. Those were the two motivating factors of Jesus' life, pleasing his Father and loving and serving people. And in fact, Jesus said that was the summation of the whole Old Testament. Because in Matthew 22, starting at verse 35, pardon me, starting at verse 37, after being asked what was the most important commandment in the Old Testament, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. We call it the great command. Jesus said, whole deal, the path to significance is loving God and loving people. For a number of years, a friend and I used to attend a free camp that uh, Blue Brana Wilderness Camp would give to pastors every June. And they, they are a wilderness camp at the time. They didn't even have a building. They, they operated out of horse trailers and tent cook shelters, and we lived in tents. And uh, we did all kinds of things, whitewater rafting, uh, hiking, um, my favorite was horseback riding. And they taught us how to saddle the horses. They would bridle them for us. Um, but we uh, put the bit in their mouths and stuff. But we would saddle them and care for them. And after a great day, we were hanging around the campfire after supper. And the camp director said to one of the wranglers, hey, should we show these guys horsey bucket ball? And the wrangler said, I'm, a, I'm game. And so the director said to all these pastors, would you guys like to play uh, a game? Sure. And so he says to Rangers, go get the horses. And he says to us, um, you know, get changed in whatever you need to get changed in, meet down at the big playing field. So we go down to this big open field, and the Wranglers have brought the horses, but they're naked. All they have is a halter and a lead rope. They don't have a, a you know, a, a saddle or the bridle for steering. And uh, they explain the way it's going to work. So they put a horse blanket on one end, a horse blanket on the other end. They had like a little utility ball. And they said, this is the way it works. Uh, you have to drop the ball on the other team's blanket to score a point. Now, the way this works is you'll be on horseback, and uh, when you've got the ball, your horse can only take three steps before you have to pass the ball to somebody else. If the ball hits the ground, only one person from each team can jump off their horse to try and get the ball. Make sure you hold on to your horse. It will run away. And um, so they explained the rules, and basically that was it. And and so they asked if they had any, uh, we had any questions, and I, I put my hand up. And I said, um, there's no steering apparatus on this horse. How are we supposed to do this? He said, well, just 
take the lead rope, tie it around to the other side of the halter and plow rein them. Just pull hard on their head. They will turn. Now, they had given me a horse that in its previous life had been a cutting horse. I had no idea what that meant. Um, some of you do, apparently. And so uh, they say, you know, just turn your, turn your toes out. That will help you stay on. I don't know how that was supposed to help. But we get on and we start playing this game. And I'm thinking, I have to become a horse whisperer because when I've got the ball, okay, three steps, stop, stop, stop. Um, but we're playing this game and we're, as, as we play, the horses are getting more and more excited. And the wranglers would come along and they would come and swat your horse's rear end just for the fun of it to see what would happen to you. And uh, that wasn't against the rules, apparently. At one point, one of the pastors was riding and the horse stopped and pulled its head down. So this kid got pulled forward and it was like a cartoon. He was bouncing down the horse's neck. And when he got to the head, the horse lifted its head and ejected him right out the back door. He didn't even touch the horse. It was awesome. The more excited my horse got, the faster he would turn. And at one point, I gave him a little pull. He did a 360 so fast, I got flying out the side. Now, for the, how many of you are horse people? Okay, so you know this. At the base of a horse's neck is a thing called the withers. I discovered why they call it the withers. Because when you're riding bareback and bouncing up and down and your horse suddenly stops, you move forward and you land on that and you withers. That's, that's what happens to you. I, I had so much fun. Oh my goodness, I don't remember the last time I laughed that much. It was so much fun. Uh, I'm not a cowboy, but we, we like horses and uh, we like rodeos. Um, I, I, I wouldn't... You couldn't pay me enough to get on one of those horses. Uh, we've gone to a number of small town rodeos where you can get up close. We got some infield tickets to the Calgary Stampede and we're sitting two rows behind the chutes. Those guys are all crazy. Because when they get on, those horses are insane. Probably as crazy as the cowboys. And they sit on and either hold the suitcase handle or the lead rope, depending whether they're riding bareback or saddle bronc. And they pull their hat down so their ears are folded out, and then they do this, which is cowboy for, I'm ready to go meet Jesus, please help me. Because as soon as they do that, I'm ready to meet Jesus, they open the door, they tighten the cinch as that horse leaves the chute, and they hang on. You don't, you don't ride a bucking bronco, you endure a bucking bronco. And there's probably not enough money in your church budget to get me to get on one of those things. That is a recipe for crazy. The interesting thing to me is, at their core, those horses are not different than the ones that I ride. Genetically, they're not really different. They're the same critter. The only difference is one has been saddle broken and one is not. One has a wild heart and one has a heart that has been surrendered. You know... Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me in John 14, 15. The only way we can do that is if somehow our rebellious heart has become surrendered. I believe that until we become surrendered, our hearts are like that bucking bronco. Bucking Broncos don't want people to go away. They're quite happy to have them look after them. 
They're quite happy to have them around. They're happy for all the things that people do for them. Just don't try and tell them what to do. Whereas the saddle horse has gone through a process where their will has been turned to that of the cowboy. And I believe loving God requires that we become spiritually saddle broken. Now, God won't break us like a cowboy breaks a, a horse, but God lovingly invites us to surrender our wills to his, to allow him to become the boss, to live in that place that Jesus articulated the night in the garden before he was crucified, not my will, but yours. That's what it takes. I believe a life of significance is one that is living with a heart that is surrendered to God so that we can know and follow his direction for our lives. A number of years ago, over 30 years ago now, Donna and I took a vacation to Southern California, and I remember it so clearly. We had one daughter. We left her at home with her grandparents, and we went to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. Now, it's only happy if you don't have little children. I don't know if you've ever been to Disneyland. If you have, and you've been with little children, um, it is not always the happiest place on earth. Uh, there are lots of little musketeers who are very unhappy. And, but if you're a couple of adults, it is a lot of fun. And so we decided we wanted a bit of a winter vacation, and we went to Disneyland, and we went to San Diego. We did SeaWorld. And the, the day we were in San Diego, we decided we'd go to the Spaghetti Factory, which is a restaurant that... We'd gone to in our dating days in Calgary and uh, always had inexpensive but pretty good food. It was in a rough part of San Diego at the time. It was in a kind of bit of a rundown part of downtown. And we got there before work hours were done, have an early supper. We lingered for a while. And by the time we were done, the workday was well over and it was dark outside. And we'd had to park about five or six blocks away from the restaurant. I was a little bit nervous and I tucked on his arm in mine. I said, let's go. And uh, we started walking. The only person I could see was somebody way off in the distance coming toward us, obviously a street person. And um, it, it just didn't feel terribly comfortable to me. And so um, I just wanted to get to our car and get out of there, get back to our hotel. And as we were walking, I, I made the mistake of looking up and catching this street person's eye when they were, I don't know, maybe three or four meters in front of us. And when I caught his eye, he said, excuse me, do you have any spare change I could have? Now, I don't know what your thoughts are when a street person asks for money. And uh, it's, my issue wasn't that I didn't have money in my pocket. We were on vacation. I had lots of money. I just wasn't interested in giving him any. And so I said, no, I don't. And by that time, we were close enough that he put his hand out and put it on my chest and stopped me. That was phenomenally shocking to me. And he looked at me and said, do you mean to tell me you don't have a quarter dime or nickel I could have? And I kind of pushed his arm away and I said, no. And I pushed by the man. And I was quite shaken by that encounter. But then God's Holy Spirit started to bug me. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where God's Holy Spirit just started to work you over. And he was working me over with a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 25. And it was the passage of Scripture where Jesus is talking, and he's talking about his return. And it says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep 
on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the passage goes on to talk about how he's going to talk to those, those who are the goats, the ones on the other side, and say to them, depart from me. I, didn't, I don't know you because you saw me hungry and didn't give me something to eat and thirsty. He goes through all those things Say you didn't do any of that to me. And they will say, when did we see you that way? And he will say, when you saw the least of one of these, my brothers, and didn't do it to them, it was like you didn't do it to me. And that's the part that was grinding. And by the time we had gotten to the car, I had formulated a plan to get God's Holy Spirit off my back. I said to Donna, we got to go find that guy. I'm going to give him 20 bucks. It seemed like a fair trade. $20 US, 200 Canadian, whatever, to get God off my back seemed like a fair trade to me. And we drove around and we could not find him. I could not soothe my conscience. And that night when I went to bed, I asked for God's forgiveness. And I said, God, with your help, please help me to never refuse to meet a need again that you put in front of me that I can possibly meet. You see, loving people is about investing my life, my time, my treasure, my talents in their lives by meeting their needs. The, the hungry's need for food. The sick's need for health care. The homeless's need for shelter. The lonely's need for relationship. The mistreated and marginalized need for justice and protection. I believe a life of significance is not only one that is learning to live with a heart surrendered to God so that we can know and follow his direction for our lives, but also with eyes open for opportunities to invest our lives in those around us. And isn't that what the experiment was from last week? This grace bombing, was it not open your eyes to need that you can possibly meet? Well, how do we begin? I believe first we need to honestly evaluate our hearts. And we need to ask this question, have I surrendered my will to my heavenly father or am I spiritually a bucking bronco? I don't want God to go away. I just don't want him to be boss. You know, it's possible to be a good church person, a good, a good churchman, a good churchwoman, a, a student leader in the youth group, but still at the core of our being, be spiritually a bucking bronco. Not your will, but mine. God won't break us like a cowboy breaks a horse. He simply invites us to surrender to him. It's that living sacrifice that Paul talks about. It's letting him know and choosing today and then again and again and again to let him be boss. To say, not my will, but yours. It's possible that you've never ever surrendered to Jesus. 
You can do that this morning, right in this moment, by simply saying, Jesus, I need you to be part of my life. I want you to take control. I think the second thing we need to do is we need to ask God to open our eyes. You know, it is so easy to live with our eyes clamped shut. There's so much need in our world that sometimes we just look away. A number of years ago, uh, Donna and I uh, joined a, a gym. Uh, we had a twofold purpose. One was to try and get in better shape. Some of you are thinking, well, that didn't work. True. Um, the other was to meet people who didn't know Jesus. Um, we, we wanted to develop friendships with people who were far away from God. And uh, Donna was much better at that than I was. I didn't seem to do well when I was fighting for my life on equipment. But she made lots of friends. And uh, she was talking to one lady she made friends with who traveled every winter, would come back with these gorgeous tans, would be gone for a couple months at a time. And they were just chatting. And Donna mentioned that we were going away. And uh, we were going to uh, Haiti to meet uh, two of our sponsored compassion children. And so uh, this lady asked if we were getting away. And Donna said, yeah, we're, we're getting away to Haiti. She said, why would you go there? And she said, well, we're part of this organization called Compassion, and we sponsor a couple kids down there, and so we're going to meet her. And uh, she said, well, like, there's no resorts or anything down there, are there? No, there's no resorts in Haiti. And she said, oh, I could never go to a place like that. And Donna said, why? And she said, I, I, just, I, I just don't want to see that. If we're going to live a life of significance, we need to ask God to open our eyes. We, we can't any longer walk around with our eyes closed to the cries of those in need. Shortly after Donna and I were in San Diego all those years ago, we became aware of compassion. And when we found out about compassion in this newfound, God, if you put a need in front of me and we have an opportunity to meet it, we'll do it. We said, we're going to sign up. We signed up for our first two kids. When we discovered that for $41 a month, we could feed and clothe and educate and teach a trade and, and help them learn about Jesus, we were in. And uh, so we sponsored our first two children. We presently sponsor four. We're, we're, um, we just had one graduate, and we haven't replaced her yet. Um, I wish you could meet Angela. I, I, hopefully we have a picture of her when we met her. Uh, she's a Haitian girl who was living in the Dominican Republic with her family. And there she is uh, at the Compassion uh, site. Uh, that was 2005, I believe, and we, we got to meet her. Uh, that was an amazing day. I, I can tell you about it later. We don't have time right now. And uh, we, we did a home visit. We met her mom, and we met her baby brother, uh, who we now sponsor. And we, when we went to the home, the compassion worker said, oh, my God. It was pretty bad. She lived with her mom and her grandma. Her grandma was stone blind. She had a baby brother. Her mom was the most vacant human being I'd ever met in my entire life. It was like you looked in her eyes and she was dead. We later found out that one of the ways she provided for the family was through prostitution. No wonder she was a little dead on the inside. 
So um, it was such a, a dramatic and, and uh, needy home that they allowed us to sponsor her baby brother, Martine, as well. And so we've been doing that. We discovered that uh, when she started the Compassion Project, she had raging eye infections and uh, parasites. And because of our sponsorship, she was able to get health care and uh, get that dealt with. And the doctor, who was part of the Compassion uh, Development, the Child Development Center, told us that she probably would have gone blind if the infections hadn't been dealt with. Um, we had some friends that were going back uh, a few years later and they were going to be going to the Dominican Republic and they were going to be at that project. So we loaded them up with gifts and said, you know, if, if you happen to meet her mom, you're going to meet the most vacant human being you've ever seen. It's just scary. And uh, we gave, them, gave her gifts to take to the family and to our kids. When they got back, we could hardly wait to see them. And uh, I said, so, did you, did you meet our kids? Yep, we met your kids. Did you meet her mom, their mom? Yep. Yes, but we didn't meet the lady you talked about. I'm going, well, you met her mom. Yes, but that's not the lady I talked about. No, I didn't meet her mom. No, you met her mom. Okay, you're confusing me. What are you talking about? They said, the lady we met is not the lady you described because she was bright and alive, and she shared with us. Because of her involvement with, the, with compassion because of her kids, she's met Jesus. And Jesus changed her life. Best, $41 a month. This is a picture of Angela today. She's graduated from the program. She's gorgeous. I'm sorry, I get very emotional. Uh, I want to invite you to sponsor a child. This is a place you can start. It's the best $41 a month we spend. And for $51, you can supercharge your sponsorship. And that extra $10 goes to some community development stuff. Uh, you know what? I'm convinced if you'd seen what I'd seen and heard what I'd heard, you would rush that table to sponsor as many children as you can. And sometimes people come to the table and they'll pick up a child and they'll say, you know, I'll pray about it. I'm so tempted to say, what do you think Jesus is going to say? No? I don't think he's going to say no. He may, you may need to pray about God. How do we make space? One of my friends that I bring with me when I can is Judy. Judy's a single woman. She sponsors 50 uh, compassion kids. Writes them every month. Uh, she does not have a high-powered job. She's not an executive. She's an administrative assistant uh, in an HR firm. And uh, she doesn't have a car because that way she can sponsor more kids. She's a superhero. She's living with her eyes wide open. And we don't all have to be Judy's. But compassion's a place you could start, perhaps. Uh, I would encourage you to look at the table um, it's not the only way. You, your church is trying to help you expand your horizons. You can throw a party in your neighborhood for your neighbors. Maybe you could stop and uh, learn the name of a street person that you go by. Uh, maybe it's taking an interest in a co-worker. Maybe it's going on a missions trip. I bet if you sat down with Pastor Mike, he could give you some ideas of ways you could help around here and use your 
time and talents and resources. But it's about asking God to help us live with our eyes wide open and jumping in where God opens the door. The reality is this, however, the thought of living that kind of life, living a great commandment life, of loving God by surrendering to him and uh, living with my eyes wide open, living a life of significance may seem scarier than living a life of insignificance because surrender is a scary thing. My reality is I like to be in control. And if I surrender, I don't get to be in control anymore. And if I do that, well, what will God do? I don't know. Will it be safe? Maybe, but maybe not. What will it require of me? I don't know. Will I be able to carry on the way I have? Maybe not. I had a chiropractor friend who God opened his eyes to this idea of living with his eyes wide open on a missions trip. And God so wrecked him in the most positive way he could no longer justify his private golf course membership. He just couldn't do it anymore. It turned his life upside down in the most positive way. He was living a life of significance. You know, living with our eyes open is a scary way to live because what you will see will break your heart. And it will upset your equilibrium and it may force you to change some of your values. And it will probably cost you something of your time and your talent and your treasures. I, I don't know personally the cost for you of choosing to live a life of significance by living out the great commandment, but I can promise you this. You won't be bored, and you won't be afraid that your life doesn't matter. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you left the halls of heaven, lived as an example for us, living with your heart fully surrendered to the Father and eyes wide open to the world around you. Thank you. Jesus, would you help us to live with hearts surrendered to you, eyes open to the need around us, and step through those doors you invite us to step through. God, help us to live lives of significance. Amen. And let's pray. Father, would you use us in the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Holy Spirit that dwells in us to be your agents of love and compassion in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and across this world, Lord, may we be your agents of blessing. And so use us locally and globally as we go from here, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, God bless you.